Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them back up to Romans chapter 11, and let's uh, see if we can't wade through some more of this. Uh, it's a paragraph that we're dealing with. The paragraph really begins in verse 17. I want to read beginning at verse 17 and going through verse 22, so follow as I read. Uh, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree... Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, guys, um, let me say real quickly that uh, this is still directed at Gentiles. You'll notice that he mentions that in verse, in, in verse 13. He is speaking to Gentiles, Gentiles who have been grafted into the, to the, uh, to the, uh, the stock, the, uh, the good olive tree. He is warning them. Uh, the specific warning is that they are not to be arrogant. That is mentioned in verse 8. That's what we worked through last week. Um, what, what, I, what, I've, what I'm trying to do with this paragraph is this. I'm trying to get through it, through the end of verse 22. That is just to tell you what's being said. Then tonight, I want to spend most of our time, at least um, uh, hopefully almost all of our time, on the lessons that can be derived from that passage after we've worked our way through it, go back then and say, okay, now what lessons can we derive from it? And then next week, what I want to do is address an issue that I said last week, if you were listening and your little theological gears are turning, it's going to crop up. And what's going to crop up is... Uh, uh, don't we believe in something called eternal security? And it seems like something else is in here. Well, we're going to address that next week. So what we're going to do, we're going to try to work through the rest of the passage. We're up to verse 21. We're going to work through 21 and 22 rather, rather quickly. Then we're going to spend our time on the lessons that can be drawn from this paragraph that begin in verse 18. And the next week, we're going to come back and deal with the uh, the issue that seems to be um, uh, standing in this text in places. So we'll come back to it next week. So here we go. We're up to verse 21. And of course, the admonition from the Apostle Paul is pleading with the Gentiles not to be arrogant. That is, yes, you've been mistreated all these years by Jews uh, and you were the outsiders, but now you're the insiders and they're the outsiders. And Paul warns them, do not be arrogant. And he uses the illustration in verse 21, which is something he often does he reasons from the lesser to the greater. That is, if he, if God cut off branches that were the original stock, well, he'll certainly do it to you too. That's what he says. For he did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. It's kind of like um, a, a father who has a business and he wants to give his business to his son. But his son turns out to be a derelict. So he, instead of giving it to the son, he gives it to his nephew. And the warning to the nephew is, now listen, If he did that to the son, he'll do that to you too. And that's what Paul is saying to the Gentiles. If God did that to Judaism, he will do that to you. That is trying to underscore 
the need not to be arrogant. So just understand that if he did that to Israel, he will do it to you. And then in verse 22, he says, um, note then. Now guys, this is a pretty, this is a fairly, um, you know, <laughs> all scripture is inspired. All scripture is, is profitable. All of it is God's word. All of it is written by men, is penned by men, but written and inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. All of it is equally divine, but not all of it is equally packed, if you know what I mean. Not every text is as rich in, in truth as some are, and this one is pretty packed. That is uh, verse 22. Note then, he starts by this saying, now listen up, because he's about to make an application. He's drawing a deduction from what he's just said, and he said, note then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, that would be Jews or Israel. But God's kindness to you, Gentiles, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Now here, here's the point that I don't want you to miss out of verse 22, guys. Um, the only way that any Christian could find or think of himself as superior to anybody else is when he fails to understand the truth about God. And the specific truth that is mentioned here is this. That the God to whom we belong is both kind and severe. Now, guys, um, not the 21st century God is, 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 I mean, he isn't like that. Uh, the 21st century God is one-dimensional. He's only love. He's only mercy. He's only kindness. In fact, you hear statements. You hear people make statements like this. Well, uh, the God that I believe in would never do yada, yada, yada. Or, or my God would never do yada, yada, yada. And, and I believe in a God of love is yada, yada, yada. Uh, but the point is, guys, Paul says, you need to understand that God is both. He is both kind and he is both, and he is also severe. Severity and kindness found in the same God. Guys, do you remember, do you remember the parable? It's, it, it's, I know it's found one place. It's found in Luke 19. And it's the parable of the, uh, the talents. And the one guy gets ten, another guy gets five, another guy gets one, you know, and the ten guy goes out and makes ten and, and, um, and then the guy with five goes out and makes five more. And then the, then the guy with one, he goes out and he buries his. And so the, the, uh, landowner comes back home and the guy with it made ten, you know, wait on way to go. And, and the guy that makes five, wait, way to go. And then the guy that makes, who buried his one comes back and, 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 and let me read you what he says. And he said to him, um, then another came, Lord, here is your mina, which is a unit of money, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now, you know what it said next? Here's what it said next in this paragraph, in this, in this parable. The, the landowner says, oh, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You thought I was a severe man? Oh, I'm so sorry you misunderstood my character and my nature. No, I'm not that at all. You shouldn't have thought that about me. I'm just, I'm just horribly sorry for this piece of misinformation. 
That's not what is said, ladies and gentlemen. Let me read you what he says. Um, uh, I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe, a severe man. Taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sell. But my point is simply, guys, that our culture is trying to deny that. Paul says it here in Romans 11, but it's said elsewhere. Um, the one thing, ladies and gentlemen, that will um, uh, keep you from this subtle drift towards high-mindedness is a knowledge of God's nature and character. And specifically here, it is that God is kind and He is severe. He is mercy and He is also judgment. He is love and He is also wrath. He is both. And our culture does everything it can to deny one of those. And of course, you know which one it is. He is both, ladies and gentlemen, The God of the 21st century is not like the God that Paul is describing in verse 22. The God of the 21st century has no severity. Um, You know, guys, um, and you can see it in the way that we, the way that we relate to sin. My point is this, um, I didn't have this said said to me. This was not said to me, but it was said to John Stott, and I read John Stott's book. <laughs> um, somebody comes to John Stott and says, "Listen, I know that having that affair was a bad thing. He, you know, he was unfaithful to his wife. I know that that's not a that, you know, but it's okay because God will forgive me. It's His job." Guys, I'm not trying to underscore that. I'm not trying to teach you that God won't forgive. Indeed, he will. But that kind of approach that forgiveness is owed me. It's God's duty to to wink at my poor behavior. It's not only wrong, it is very dangerous, ladies and gentlemen, when our views of God do not spring from, from this book, our, our behavior becomes very, very sloppy. Remember this, Paul says to the Gentiles. He is both kind and severe. Don't forget that. By the way, the greatest illustration of both of those things being wedded to one another is at Calvary, where you see his kindness and his severity, that he is willing to save, but he must punish sin. Severity and kindness kiss each other at the cross. So, Paul, all he's doing is making an argument, and the argument is, do not be arrogant. Now, those are the, those are the verses. So let me try to draw the lessons uh, for our application out of out of these verses. I think I have four of them. Real quickly, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, 
The greatest danger that any of us face is our own propensity to be proud. The great, C.S. Lewis called pride the worst of all, all the vices. He calls pride the complete anti-God state of mind, saying that pride leads to every one of the other vices. The complete anti-God, anti-God state of mind is pride. You know, um, one of the one of the statements in the in the New Testament that probably troubles me the most because this is this is kind of very close to my home. It's really close to my neighborhood. Um, because I I love the scriptures, I love Reformed theology. That I I think you know that by now. I I love systematic theology. I love to teach it. But do you know that Paul says even that? He says in, in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine some impudent donkey like me allowing the possession of great truths that grow out of this book to produce pride? You see, guys, that is how deceptive is the, is the human heart. The greatest danger we face is high-mindedness. And let me tell you where it, where it most often shows up in our relationship to other people. Even consistent with this text, here is one group of people, Gentiles, looking down on another group of people, Jews. Well, now, of course, before that, it was the Jews who look down on the Gentiles. Or the whites looking down on the blacks. Or the blacks looking down on the Hispanics. Or the Hispanics looking down on the Indians. Ladies and gentlemen, where did we ever get get, get the notion that there was something superior intrinsically about us? That the people who should be the least guilty are the people who understand the beauties of grace. You know why we are who we are? Because God sovereignly did something in us and made us who we are. Of all the people on the face of the planet, the people that ought to be the least guilty is us. I'm not sure we are. I I would love to think we are, guys. Grace or an, and a knowledge of grace ought to ought to be very, ought to be enough for us to maintain a sense of real humility. Augustine was once asked um, what he thought were the were the most important principles of holy living, and Augustine said, "Well, principle number one for holy godly living is humility." Principle number two for holy, godly living is humility. And you can imagine what the third one was. Humility, humility, humility. 
C.S. Lewis says, it is, the, it is the sin from which all other vices spring. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And yet, we're guilty. We look down on those people and those people and those people and those people and those people. I want you to see something, guys, um, because this is a text, if, if, if ever imbibed by, it's in 1 Corinthians 4, if you can find it real quick. If we can ever, I mean, get this. You know what I mean, get it? I mean, not just know it, but <clears throat> get it. And, uh, and I hope several of you have gotten it. I'm not sure I have yet, but I want to get it. And um, it's found in 1 Corinthians 4. Let me read it to you. It's one quick little statement. It's in verse 7, and Paul says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All right, guys. What do you have that you did not receive? I think you can see the answer to that, where, where Paul's going. I think he, that's what you call a rhetorical question. The answer is implied. What do you have? Oh, well, you know, one of the problems with prosperity, ladies and gentlemen, when you make a lot of money, is that you begin to identify it and lose sight of the fact that you begin to think that, that, that money equals character. And that because I've got money, I'm better, and I'm better because I'm better. That's one of the great uglinesses of money, ladies and gentlemen. And let me tell you, the uh, prosperity is the thing that gives rise to so much high-mindedness. So, what do you have? What do you have that you did not receive? You got a you got a good, keen, sharp mind? Do you? You know where you got that? You got a good, valuable, recognizable education? You know how you got that? You have a skill that is very valued by uh, the culture? People are willing to pay for it? Well, who taught you that? You have forgiveness of sin. You have, you have eternal life awaiting you. What do you have that you did not receive? Pride, ladies and gentlemen, is the, um, is the great danger of our, for our souls. That's the, that's the first lesson that I, I want you to see in... Um, in this little paragraph. Let me give you the second one. Do you notice, I mean, of course, uh, Paul is talking about what God has done to Gentiles um, to save them. I mean, he, he uses the language that he, they've been grafted in. So here's the, here's the point. Who did that saving work for those Gentiles? <laughs> um, uh, they were grafted in. Who did that? Does anyone ever graft himself in? Do you, do you see the point, folks? It is God that did that saving work. They are in this thing called the household of faith 
Because God did something. He, he, he did a supernatural work and grafted them in. A part of this image, ladies and gentlemen, is to communicate to us that the work of salvation is purely and only the work that God has done. Um, I'm going to tell you a story. It's not my story. It's another preacher's story. So I just want you to know I didn't have this story, but it's a, I thought it was a great story. It's a little dated, and you'll see how dated it was um, when, I, when you hear the names. It was a, uh, the preacher told the story about um, David Frost. You know, David Frost is the one that preceded David Letterman. Now, I know most of you never heard that name, David Frost, but some of us have. Uh, um, David Frost was one of those late-night talk show hosts uh, years and years ago. Well, he was, one night he had on his show Madeline Murray O'Hare. And they were arguing about the existence of God, as you might well imagine. And so she said, no, it doesn't exist. And David Frost said, oh. And so at some point, David Frost gets uh, somewhat um, uh, frustrated with the whole thing. And so he decides, I'm going to settle this the good old American way. I'm going to take a vote. So he turns to the viewing audience and he says, how many of you out there believe in God? And of course, almost every hand went up. And um, this preacher who's telling the story says, Madeline Murray O'Hare missed her chance. Missed her chance. What, what she should have then done is said, well, I see all those hands. The bus will wait for you. Um, that's a private joke. Um, could I take my own survey? And then turn to the audience and say to the audience, uh, you all said that you believe in God. Let me ask you another question. How many of you believe in the God of the Bible? The God who thundered at Sinai and and gave his law and ten decrees. How many of you believe in the God who spilled the blood of his only son so that sin could be atoned for? How many of you believe that God is a consuming fire? Now, raise your hands. Now, here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. You believe that! And do you know why you believe it? Because you were grafted in. God did a work in you. (laughs) And he grafted you in. You don't graft yourself in. Yes, but uh, <laughs> he grafted you in. That's the second lesson. Let me let me move on. Thirdly, you will notice that in the midst of this argument and and what Paul is doing in the midst of this paragraph, it's in verse twenty. He says they were broken off because of their unbelief. Guys, the the third lesson that I want you to see from this paragraph is that unbelief is always and only it is always the cause of damnation. And it is the only the cause of damnation. People want to ask me half a dozen times a year, what is the unpardonable sin? There it is. It's unbelief. It is a steadfast commitment to an unbelief. Unbelief is always met with condemnation. Uh, unbelief always produces the same thing. The branches are lopped off. That's, that's the result 
of unbelief every time. That's the third lesson. Here's the fourth and final lesson. Guys, um, um, there it is. It's in verse 20. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. Now, guys, I want to take a bit of an exception with that statement. Um, They were cut off by the cause of their unbelief, but you stand in awe. Now, I know what the translators are doing, but I looked this up this this afternoon or this morning um, just to make sure that I'm not telling you anything. The word that is translated awe there is the word... Phobos. That's a phobos. You know, we get some English words from that Greek word. Uh, like phobias. I know what the translator is trying to do because stand in awe is so much easier than saying fear. Because evangelicals don't like the idea, they don't like the notion that fear should be included. But I'm telling you that part of the gospel is to tell people to phobos. Now you can, you can say, well, what that really means is to stand in awe. That's fine with me, but I'm simply telling you the Greek word that there is phobos. And that's the normal Greek word, and, the, and many of your translations have the word fear in there. He says, he says to these Gentiles, they were cut off because of their unbelief. So you believing Gentiles stand in fear. And part of the proclamation to God's people is to, is to tell them there needs to be a healthy little quivering on your part. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Work out your own salvation in all? No. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Ladies and gentlemen, this God is not to be toyed with. He's not to be toyed with. And, and we, we, we dally with sin. We, we, we play with it. Guys, the history of Christianity is littered with cut off branches. You know what I mean by that? Um, for instance, the church of Asia Minor, which is, which is Turkey today, Church at Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae. I have heard that there's a small little church in Ephesus. But that's Asia Minor. What happened to those churches? Where did they go? Or, Or how about the Church of North Africa? Do you know that perhaps the greatest mind that was ever created or that was ever possessed in the Christian church is a guy by the name of Augustine. You know he was from North Africa. 
You didn't know that. Augustine was from North Africa. Where is that church? It's gone. Um, what about the what about the Reformation churches in Europe? You know, I love Prague. I um, whenever I get a chance to go and do something substantive, I want to go because Prague is gorgeous. And of course, all these European cities, there's so many of them are alike. They have they have the, the city square. I mean, that's how the, that's how the city started. You know, they had these squares, and that's where all the, the people sold their chickens and their fish and their cheese and their beer or whatever. Anyway, so these these squares are still there. And in Prague, there's this enormous square. There's there's just it's just ringed with oh there's a there's a there's a solar clock over here, and the apostles spin around over here, and there's this beautiful church over here, and then, of course, there's restaurants everywhere. But over there in this corner is a church, the Hussite church. You know what the Hussites were? You ever heard of John Huss? John Huss was burned at the stake. Whatever happened to the Hussite church? It's a, it's a cut-off branch. You go, Susan and I were in Belgium just recently, and you go into these churches. We went into like three, and one of them was absolutely spectacular. Spectacular. Had art in there that were just just breathtaking. A pulpit that I told Susie I really wanted to have at Gracie Van. It was about the size of this stage. It, uh, it was it was really something. But 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 anyway. They're, they're museums. People are walking through, and there's a little worship service over here on the side, and this guy's doing some kind of worship service with about 17 people and about 400, about 200 tourists in the thing, you know, just gawking and everything. London, the church in England, you know that there are more mosques in London today than there are churches? The history of the Christian church is littered with cut-off branches. You know why, don't you? Because they didn't do what Paul told them to do. They didn't stand in fear. Let me say to you, my brother and sister in Christ, what happens on a national level also happens on an individual church level. How many of you came from churches that when you were there, they were thriving bastions of proclaimers of the gospel? And now, they're promoting everything that you abominate. The same thing that God does on a national level And on a church level, he does on an individual level. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in fear.
I leave you with the admonition from the Apostle Paul. Let's quit. Our Father, I, I pray that you will forgive us as a church for allowing our prosperity to make us high-minded people. People who took credit for things that we shouldn't have ever taken credit for. People who developed a, a streak of independence that is so ugly and so unrighteous. People who, who began to have their lives cluttered with, with, the, um, with the stuff of prosperity. God, I'm not the only one in this room who has a certain excitement about what you're up to at this present time. Humbling us, reminding us that we are dependent, reminding us that our identity is not to be found in our our possessions, that our, our worth is not bound up in our portfolio. That you are reminding us that we are to stand in fear. Father, if... Um, if that is not uh, said enough here at Gracie Van, it's my fault. And I pray that you will forgive me. But I pray that Gracie Van will not be a place where you are toyed with. That you are treated with contempt. And that expectations are often false. So Father, we come to worship you as you are, the God of kindness immense kindness towards people as wicked as I and severity a severity that comes and meets every case of unbelief dismiss us tonight Lord with a greater sense of awe and reverence and respect and fear for the God who made us and found a way to save us in Jesus Christ in whose name we pray Amen. thank you and good night